After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But this temple that he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed in the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Amen. Thank you, Sam. I invite you to keep your Bible open to John. We're going to go through these verses that Sam read. So remember last week, the story of the wedding at Cana? It ended with this statement, that the the disciples believed. Isn't that great? That the disciples believed. John 2, 11. Let me reread it. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the miracle of Jesus changing the water into wine was a sign. And the result or the effect of a sign was to reveal the glory of Jesus. And the effect of that revelation was to bring about belief in his disciples. Now, look at how today's story ends. The story is about Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple and being asked for a sign and telling them that he would raise that destroyed temple in just three days. And the story ends in verse 22 like this. Look at verse 22. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Isn't that great? They Believed. I mean, that's the whole purpose of John's gospel, that people would believe. Remember John chapter 20, verse 31? And he tells us the reason that he wrote this gospel. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so he's making it crystal clear in chapter 2, verse 11, and in chapter 2, verse 22, that this, in fact, is the effect or the result the events had when they happened. And that he prays they will have when he tells them. And even when I preach them today. And I think it's also true that the reason belief happens is because in these stories, Jesus manifests his glory. And I pray that that will happen again today. The manifestation of the glory of Jesus. So let's get into the story. What is the situation If you look uh, in your Bible to verses 13 and 14, they kind of set the stage here. It says the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and, and the money changers were sitting there. So inside the temple court, a place that was meant for prayer, a place that was meant 
for other acts of worship. There were pens of oxen and sheep and cages of pigeons and sellers sitting around waiting to kind of make a deal, you know, make a transaction. And others who were prepared to exchange a pilgrim's money into the right currency so that they could make a purpose. They were called the money changers. And so the outward reason uh, for this setup was probably that, you know, the law uh, required sacrifices, right, of oxen and sheep and pigeons, and many worshipers would have come a long way and would not have brought their sacrifice with them. And so this made the animals, you know, conveniently available for purchase. And you could say it was kind of a loving thing to do here. You know, make the purchase convenient. You know, such a deal I have for you, right? Well, what did Jesus say when he saw this? Well, keep reading, verses 15 to 16. And making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. And he overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade or into a market. So Jesus obviously did not really approve of what he saw. Why not? What's the problem here? Well, don't jump too quickly to the other gospels. For example, when Jesus does something similar in Matthew 21, verse 13, he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. But John does not report either of those two things as the problem here. He doesn't say it's a house of prayer, and he doesn't say that they're a bunch of robbers. So is John even reporting the same event here? You know, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple at the end of his three-year ministry. And in John, he's doing it at the very beginning of his three-year ministry. I mean, it could be that John has moved the event and, you know, isn't claiming really to have like a chronological order. But most likely, this is a different event than what Mark and Matthew and Luke record because Jesus' response is not the same. And the outcome in Jerusalem really is not the same. So what matters here is what Jesus does say. And he says in verse 16, get these out of here. How dare you make my father's house into a market or into a house of trade. Jesus does not say that the you know, sellers and the market changers are robbers or that the animals are defective or that the place is a house of prayer, even though it is. He says that they have turned his father's house into kind of a bazaar, into an emporium, into a big old flea market. The disciples saw this incredible display of fury, this display of zeal, this display of righteous indignation. I mean, he was using a homemade whip of ropes and he drove out the oxen. Now, oxen, these guys... Oxen are big. Have you ever seen an oxen? That's a big animal. And then he's dumping the boxes of the money on the ground, and he's turning over the tables, and he's, he's saying with who knows how loud of a piercing voice that he had to yell almost over the bleeding of all those animals, you know, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade or into a market. And when the disciples saw this, they immediately connected it with Psalm 69, verse 9, where King David says, zeal. For your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And so Jesus, he was consumed with zeal 
for his father's house. And reproaches were no doubt falling down like big sheets of rain all over him. You're like, what in God's name are you doing, Jesus? What is going on here? I mean, can you imagine this sweet little Jesus boy that we're going to sing about in a couple months? Sweet little Jesus boy. I mean, this gentle one, this humble one, you know, that will give us rest for our souls. Look what he's doing. So what made Jesus so angry? Hypocrisy, legalism, and the love of money. Hypocrisy, legalism, and the love of money. The contrast he pointed out was between, you know, his father's house and then a marketplace. My father's house, what does that mean? My father's house means, you know, this house is about knowing God. This house is about loving God. This house is about honoring God. About honoring my father. In this temple, my father's number one. My father is supreme. My father is the greatest treasure here. Psalm 84, verse 11. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. But that focus has been replaced by a focus on trade. And there's no reference here to the people who needed the animals, the pilgrims who were buying the sheep and the pigeons, the anger. It's all directed. It's all focused on those who were selling and handling the money, handling the currency. Jesus could see right through their, their, their veneer of religious helpfulness. He could see right into their heart as to why they were doing what they were doing. I mean, look at verse 25. Sam didn't read that one, but look at verse 25 in chapter 2. It says that he himself knew what was in man. And he knows what's in you, too. He knows what's in me. And why I do what I do. And why you do what you do. What did he see? What did Jesus see that day? He saw that this uh, bazaar, this emporium, this big old fleet farm or fleet market was not advancing communion with his heavenly father. It was not flowing out of the love of God. It was flowing from the love of money. And what made it worse was that religious ritual, that fake helpfulness were being used as a cover for greed. All the entanglements of greed and religion. In our day, I came across the an article out of Christianity Today, it was written a few years back, I think in 2014, and it, it's entitled, The Pastor's Biggest Temptation. <clears throat> and it says here that every year, hundreds of pastors go to jail for embezzling God's money from their churches. Hundreds. And then he gives two specific examples of, of people, you know, I mean, it, these people are, are, that I'm going to talk about, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, what I thought, God-honoring people. For example, Christianity Today magazine, April 14th, tells of the downfall of 78-year-old legendary Korean pastor, David Young Chow. How many know Chow? I mean, his church is, it was huge. 
I mean, they would get up at four in the morning and pray in those prayer cells up on the mountain. A wonderful example. And he embezzled $12 million from his church. And then turn the page, we read about a guy, Barry Minkow, former pastor of San Diego Community Church, being sent to prison for, for, for stealing $3 million from his church. I mean, this is mind-boggling. These pastors have been given you know, great acclaim, enjoyed incredible success by anyone's standards, and possessed the opportunity and the anointing, really, to make a world of difference in the lives of untold thousands. And they traded it all in for some cash. They swiped and swapped the pearl of great price for a few bucks from the devil's pawn shop. Hypocrisy. And that's what Jesus saw. He saw hypocrisy. Religion used as kind of a front or veneer for greed, empty forms of love for God, plastering all over the insatiable love of money. Jesus, he boils, he fumes when he sees this formal godliness as a cover for gain. It's kind of like what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, you know, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people think that godliness is a means to financial gain, and people still think this way. I mean, the prosperity gospel, oh, if you have enough faith, you know, you're going to drive a Cadillac all the time. You're going to have lots of money. You know, claim it, believe it, name it. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It feeds on our lusts. It feeds on our covetousness. That's not the gospel. It's wrong. And, the, and, 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 and Paul goes on to write to Timothy, but people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I wonder what Chow would say to us today if we could talk to him or that other pastor that's in jail for embezzling $3 million. I wonder what they would say to us today. All the grief and the heartache. Jesus made it very clear that underneath the religious legalism of the Pharisees, he saw a love for money. And Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you know, just jot this down, Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then the very next verse, Luke comments, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Now, that's another form of hypocrisy. Shoot the messenger of truth. That doesn't happen today, does it? Shoot him. Shoot that messenger of truth. Reduce yourself with ridicule. And you can just feel the zeal of Jesus burning in Matthew chapter 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. In other words, you paint a real pretty picture. You put up this fine display of religious helpfulness in the temple bazaar. Right, but you are driven by the love of money, not the love of God. What drives you? If God could look into your heart, and he can, and he does, what drives you? You want some applause? You love money? 
Oh, how sophisticated and subtle it gets. Who but Jesus can ferret it out? Who but Jesus can expose the ways that we rationalize covetousness, especially in rich America? Listen to how Jesus exposes religious greed, this covering of religious greed. In Mark chapter 7, 9 to 12, Jesus says to the Pharisees and the uh, scribes, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. In other words, you don't need to support your needy parents anymore. Just give us your money. Or as Jesus said in Luke 20, 46 and 47, beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make these big, long prayers. What Jesus saw on that day in the temple was not just a a one-time thing. It wasn't just an isolated instance of some questionable worship support. It was the outworking of greed that was cloaked with this veneer of religion. Matthew 15, 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is so far from me, and in vain do they worship me. In other words, my father's not being worshiped here. Money is being worshipped here in my Father's house, right there. In my Father's house, money is being worshipped. And Jesus came into the world to reveal the glory of God and to display the infinite worth of his Father and to vindicate his Father's honor and to free us from the killing effects of the love of money. And so what's their response to Jesus' anger, his zeal, his fury? Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I mean, that's not a real encouraging response. You know, why not? Because it kind of confirms what they're hiding. I mean, there was another time when they asked for a sign from him to prove himself and listen to what happened. And this is in Matthew 12, 38 to 39. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So what's so evil? Uh, what's so adulterous? You know, why is it evil or adulterous for them to seek a sign from Jesus? It's because when they ask for a sign, it's kind of like a trick. It's kind of like a dodge, you know. It's kind of like a ploy. They don't need more signs to prove what's true. They need hearts that love what they know is true. Let me say it again. They don't need more signs to prove what's true. They need hearts that love what they know is true. And they're trying to turn a problem of greed into like a problem of knowledge. And if we can just deflect the issue on his authority and then that light won't shine so brightly into our hearts. That light won't shine so brightly into our covetousness. And so Jesus takes their question and he gives kind of a double-layered answer like he does all through John, like when he's talking about being born again or the living water and things like that. They ask, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them in verse 19, destroy this temple and I'm gonna raise in three days, I'm going to raise it up. And then they responded in verse 20. It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? And then John comments in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So what did Jesus mean when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it up? He was answering at two different levels. First, 
you know, he meant you're destroying this temple. I mean, when you desecrate the worship of my father with your, with your whitewashed greed, you destroy what this temple is. And you expose it then to the wrath of God. And it's going to be destroyed. And I tell you, that happened. The temple was destroyed some 40 years later when the Romans just leveled that temple in 70 AD. Read your history book. But at another level, he was saying, you know, that same materialistic deadness to spiritual reality that destroys this temple will also destroy me. Just like you kill worship in the temple with your consumerism and with your materialism, you will kill me. Because me and the Father, we are one. And if you destroy his house, you destroy me. And if you treasure money more than my Father, you will treasure my destruction. And you're going to buy it with 30 pieces of silver. So he's speaking at two different levels. Destroy this temple, the building. Destroy this temple, his body. And what does Jesus mean when he says, in three days I'm going to raise it up? Same two levels. I'm going to raise up my body, right? In the resurrection after three days. Remember what he says? In John chapter 10, 17 and 18, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He lays down his life for our sin. He pays the price for our sin. And then he takes his life up. When they destroy it, he builds it again in three days. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The very foundation, the cornerstone of Christianity. But there's another level of meaning. The material temple that would be destroyed, Jesus builds again in three days in the sense that he... He now replaces this temple and becomes the new place, really, where everyone can meet God, where people can have fellowship with God. Remember what he said? Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, he says, I tell you, something greater, something greater than the temple is here. And he meant himself. Remember what he said to the woman at the well? We're going to probably go over this in a few weeks. John chapter 4, 21 to 23. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, real worship, authentic worship will not be attached to Jerusalem or any other place for that matter. It's going to be in the spirit and in truth. It is attached to Jesus And Jesus is saying, I am the new temple. When I raise my body from the dead, everywhere in all the world, people can come to God through me. There'll be no pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Oh, I'm going to enjoy going there in April. But there's no pilgrimage to Jerusalem. There's no trip to Mecca. There will only be the movement of the heart from money to Christ. Has that ever happened to you? Old Reverend Vix, he was a retired pastor down in Stickney, and he had these big bushy eyebrows, and German-Russian guy, you know, one of those. He's awesome. But he would always say, you know what? The last thing to get converted is your pocketbook. And uh, I think he's right. I mean, do you believe in Jesus? Has anything changed? 
in your life in relation to your money? Jesus said, you know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And you know, we could get real righteous when we hear of those pastors, all those pastors that embezzle money from their churches, all those pastors like Cho from Korean. He calls himself Bible-believing, spirit-filled guy, praying all the time, embezzling $12 million. All those pastors, how can he do such a thing? But we do it all the time. What, Dave? I don't steal from the church. What are you talking about? Sometimes that's not what we do. It's what we don't do. Malachi, or do you say Malachi? He's that great Italian prophet. He cries out from the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? And the answer is, of course we will. Of course we will. It happens all the time. And it happens right here at Calvary United Methodist Church. When we keep for ourselves tithes and offerings, I tell you, it saddens my heart. It saddens my heart. And I'm not... I'm not saying what I'm going to say in just a minute just to throw a bunch of holy guilt on everybody. But it saddens my heart as the pastor of this awesome church. I've been a pastor here for 21 years. And this awesome church, which is in a lot of ways very, very generous. So let me say that before I say this. But it saddens me. That as the pastor of this awesome church, that of all the giving units in this church, meaning members and constituents, less than half gave any offering at all last year. And there's no record of giving. That, that saddens me. It makes me think, uh, well, maybe your heart isn't here. You know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Or it makes me think, man, I have done a lousy job as a pastor the last 21 years trying to teach stewardship. Just a crummy job. Or it makes me think, you have been hoodwinked. Like Pastor Chow. And then the outside, nobody can tell, only Jesus, you know, he knows your heart. But you love money. Kind of like the parable of the sower, isn't it? Remember the seeds? One was on rocky ground and Satan took it away and one sprung up a little bit. Woof. But then that third seed, remember? That seed that fell among the thorns, remember that one? It says, they hear the word. You know, they're in church. They hear the word, but the worries of life. And the deceitfulness of wealth. And the desires for other things come in and choke out the word 
and making it unfruitful. You notice at the end of this story in John chapter 2, again, uh, Sam did not read this part, but John writes that they, that many saw the signs and they believed. And then it's like in verse 24, but Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them for he knew all men. It's like, did they really believe or not? It's like, it says they believed because they saw these signs, but then he wouldn't entrust himself to them. It's like, maybe they really didn't believe. And if you read chapter 8, it says some people that believe too. And then later on, he calls them the father of the devil. <laughs> so did they believe or not? You know, only, only you know, really. I mean, do you believe? I mean, if Jesus came into this church today, into the temple, and he looked into your heart. What would he see? Let's pray together. Father, we're just so grateful that you love us, Lord, that you have a plan for our lives. And Lord, I thank you that when we trust you and we give you our lives, that things change. Lord, our attitudes, our actions, and how we handle money. We know it did with Zacchaeus when he came to know you. He wanted to, you know, he was, a, he was a money changer. He was a cheater. And he wanted to pay back everybody more than he took from them. And he, he wanted to honor you with his wealth, God. Lord, I thank you for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you, you see in us. And and even though you see and you know the deceitfulness of our hearts, you know our wickedness, Lord, and that you still love us and you want us and you want to come in and you want to change us from the inside out, Lord. You want to make things different. And Lord, uh, I pray that that would happen today as we come before you saying, hey, God, search my heart. Shine your giant spotlight into my heart. You know me. Lord, see if there's a wicked way in me. And Lord, I pray that we would allow you to wash us again. Lord, we're not perfect. Even as believers, of course, we're not perfect, Lord. We sin every day. But how we need your presence, how we need the word of God to wash us and to show us the way. And Lord, we need that grace to be obedient to your word, to make a difference, Lord. Lord, we want our hearts to be in the right place. And where our treasure is, that's where our hearts are. But Lord, show us how to do that. Father, we confess to you the sin of covetousness and, you know, especially in America, materialism. And Lord, uh, so often it's a rare thing to really sacrifice. Lord, we might give out of our abundance and it doesn't hurt and it's easy and makes us feel good. But God, show us how to give sacrificially in all that we do as we learn to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, as we learn to love our neighbor as ourselves. And God, I just pray if there's somebody here today that doesn't know you for sure, Lord, that they would come to you and they'd just say, God, I am so sorry. Lord, you have not been first in my life like we just sang about at the beginning of this service. We haven't sought you first. We haven't sought your lordship and your leadership and your love in our lives. 
first. And we certainly haven't loved our neighbors just like we love ourselves. So God, show us how to do that. We stand condemned, Lord, under, the, under your wrath. But Lord, I thank you that you made a way for each and every one of us through the gospel. The Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. You shed your innocent blood for us, Lord, and we want to trust in what you've done and not what we do before we do anything. So Lord, we believe that you died for our sins according to the scriptures, that you were buried and on the third day you rose again. And Lord, out of this relationship with you, this walk with you and with the Holy Spirit, Lord, you continue to change us from the inside out. Lord, help us to be givers and not takers. And we just say, please, Jesus, rule and reign in our hearts and in our lives. And God, I pray that as we gather the tithe today, as we gather the offering today, Lord, it would just uh, reflect our worship and our love for you. So Lord, uh, we just say thank you. We just pray that our whole life would just be a thank you for what you've done, Lord. There's nothing that we have that doesn't belong to you. Help us to manage what you've given us, Lord. And help us to humbly and lovingly walk according to your word. Bless each gift today, Lord, and the givers. And Lord, uh, pour out your love into our hearts to the place of overflowing so we can't help but just overflow with our love and with our lives and with our stuff. In Jesus' name, amen.